Amen. That is true. So you can be seated, take your Bibles, and turn to Exodus chapter 1. Because our hope and our need is Christ, we look to Exodus chapter 1. I don't want us to forget that. Um, Looking into the Old Testament is not necessarily a different category of our study than learning Christ. It is another avenue of revelation in learning Christ. Children, you can be dismissed to Children's Church if you'd like. You can be dismissed at this time. For the rest of us, we are going to get into Exodus chapter 1. I want to lay some groundwork for that. Um, And then we'll pray. And then we'll stand and we'll read Exodus chapter 1. But only after you feel like I've already preached one sermon this morning. Yeah. If you didn't get a handout when you came in, um, there are handouts. And I, I think they're very helpful today. So if you would like, you feel free to go to the back of the room in one of the media carts. Uh, there are handouts for this morning's sermon. Uh, a friend mentioned to me the front and back on my first Sunday back. And yes, it is uh, more than we have time for. I will do my best to be very efficient. I am joyful to be back standing here and communicating the gospel to you. And so, in that joy, one of my personal weaknesses is that I tend to be very personal and transparent. And so even this morning, I have thought about so many little personal comments that I would like to make and and tease people and laugh with people and have fun. And I, I do not have time for those things. And those are not the things that we're here to hear. And so, you can pray with me this morning that we will be very efficient. But you have some significant work to do as you listen to both the the context of Exodus and then the instruction that we have from the Lord in Exodus chapter 1. We refer to Exodus as a book of the Bible. And that's not wrong, but it's also helpful for us to refer to Exodus as one part of the Pentateuch. It's one of five parts of the Pentateuch. In its part in the Pentateuch, It reveals for us a foundation, like Genesis, of all that we know in the New Testament. It reveals to us God. It is introduction to everything as Christians we hold to be the foundation of our faith. Moses most likely wrote this part of the Pentateuch during his wilderness wandering. Now when you realize that, it's important to know who the Spirit of God is ministering to first. That is a new generation of Christians. Uh, People who hadn't first heard the promises of Genesis. A people who now, hundreds of years later, have heard stories, but they might be tempted to doubt that the God who made those promises would be faithful to keep those promises. So Moses writes to a group of Second generation children of God. Also those people who are joining with the Hebrew people, the Israelites. The book is presented to us in two main scenes or themes. The first one, we know pretty well. It's how God goes about rescuing this young nation from slavery. And we know that part of the story fairly well. 
The second is God establishing covenant relationship. What I mean by that is God's going to give them the law. He is going to describe for them, you will be a people consecrated, unique for my name, and I will be to you a benevolent king. This is the second part of the book. The theme of Exodus. If I were to tell you, if you want to know what Exodus is about, go here. I would tell you to go now to Exodus chapter 6 and verse 6. We'll go there now. In Exodus chapter 6 and verse 6, we hear the explanation of what God is doing and how we should think of ourselves and God in our relationship to him. Exodus 6 and verse 6, the word of the Lord says, Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. In those verses, we hear what it means to be consecrated to the Lord and what it means that he is a covenant-keeping God. And he refers back to Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, and the forefathers of the covenant promise. Now, let me just take a moment to warn us against a misconception about Genesis. It's what's called liberation theology. At a very surface evaluation of Exodus, we might think Exodus is a book about how God liberates us, sets us free and independent out on our own. And that's not what Exodus is about. Exodus certainly is about a people being under an oppressive taskmaster, an evil ruler, but it is not about being liberated from evil, but rather about being redeemed, about being ransomed into the family of God. So not independence, but from oppression to complete joyful dependence. It's subtle, but it's important that we understand that Exodus is not the invitation for us to be saved so that we can live on our own, but to be removed from a burdensome taskmaster to delight in a benevolent king. Think about what we're being saved from. Think back to Genesis. Exodus is an explanation of the Exodus or the Eden tragedy. In Eden, the deceiver came to our parents and said, you can be independent. And they desired independence. The deceiver came and said, you need liberation. He's keeping you down. And our parents agreed that that was what they needed. 
Exodus is not another deception about our independence. Exodus is an explanation of how the God of faithful covenant keeping is restoring his people to Eden. Where they were completely, but joyfully, dependent on their father king. In covenant with God, our bondage is broken. The death that comes with sin is ended. But it's not done by our skill, but by supernatural adoption, allegiance to our new Lord. The Israelites here in this narrative are described as having no chance of saving themselves. God intervenes and makes the demand, right? In Exodus, let my people go. God not only makes the ultimate demand, but he brings about both the pronouncing of the demand and the delivering through an ambassador. In the book of Exodus, that representative is Moses. In the new covenant, that representative is Jesus, who states the terms of the covenant. Let my people go. And then accomplishes the ransoming of those people from slavery to an oppressive ruler to adoption to a heavenly king. What happens here is not an explanation of ancient history to an irrelevant people. What happens here is a story told about God for our instruction. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, Paul, speaking specifically about the Exodus, says this. Now these things happened to them as an example. They were written down for your instruction, those who will live in the end of the age. Exodus is a historical record for guiding us. I don't know if we always handle the book of Exodus like it's a manual on Christianity, but it is. For today, we will study the first chapter. And I've titled that, The Prosperity of God and the Persecution of Pharaoh. The Prosperity of God and the Persecution of Pharaoh. So let's stand together. Take our Bibles into Exodus chapter 1. And we'll read from the word of the Lord. Exodus chapter 1 and verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher. All of these descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already there. Then... Joseph died. Our humanity might be pricked with a little concern. A real significant servant of the people is gone. And all the brothers all that gen- from all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and multiplied greatly. They multiplied. They grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. 
Now, even though Joseph had had a great relationship with the previous pharaoh, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Again, our fleshly perceptions might be pricked there, and we say, oh, that's not good. Verse 9. And the new king said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war break out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh strong cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. You should ask yourself, why? And we'll answer that a little later. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, phase two, and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick. And in all kinds of work in the field, and all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt, phase three, said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool. If it's a son, kill him. If it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, uh, the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous. They give birth before the midwives get to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. Because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. But let the daughters live. Lord Father, I pray to you that the preaching of your word would be evident in its bearing fruit in us and among us. I pray that as we sit at the feet of your word, we would have a convicted, convinced priority that while there are other tasks we could do, we could serve in capacities this morning and do any myriad of things. This is where we must be. Surrendering ourselves to the instruction of your word comes to us from your spirit, magnifies the splendor of you as our Father and your Son, our Savior. And so, Lord, lead us with a worshipful attention your instruction. In Christ's name, amen. Could you please be seated? I have then for us this morning, in chapter one, uh, two points. I think the chapter breaks down fairly uh, plainly into first, the prosperity of the people. 70 people arrive. They're there 430 years. 
And now there are myriads of people, so many that the very number of them causes the Pharaoh of Egypt to be concerned. God prospered the people, and we see that in the Genesis, I'm getting ahead of myself, the Genesis, uh, the creation mandate, be fruitful and multiply, which they did, and God blessed. The second part is persecution. Also pretty easy to see. The persecution by Pharaoh. Pharaoh becomes fearful. And we'll talk a little bit about why he was compelled by fear to do the things that he did. And then what he does unfolds through various characters, but we see the progression of the sin that was in his heart. Ultimately coming to full transparency when he says, throw the male children in the river. It starts with, uh, let's make them work hard. It starts with, it ends, or it continues with, let's make them slaves. And then a secret plan to kill the male children. And then an outright transparent revelation. I just want to annihilate these people by killing all the male babies. Let's start with the first one. It's prosperity in verses 1 through 7. The first verse begins with the Hebrew word, and. So right away, we see in Exodus 1, and these are the names of the sons. And this is written by Moses as the next section from Genesis. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Most clearly, Moses is connecting Exodus back to Genesis. The genealogy that he gives here. The genealogy is given not in chronological order, when the children are born. It's given in the maternal order. So the order of their mothers, Leah, Rachel, the concubine. Secondly, it also mentions Joseph's death. A significant conclusion of Genesis was the life and the blessing of the servant Joseph. But now, Joseph has died. And then in verse 7, as I mentioned a little bit ago, you can't help but see the connection back to the creation mandate. And the people were fruitful and they multiplied, which is what God had told the people to do in the garden. Now, let's talk for a little bit about what it meant at the introduction of the next section of the Pentateuch to say, Joseph died. The Bible tells us in Genesis 50, verse 26, about the death of Joseph. Joseph died at the age of 110, one of the younger brothers, may have possibly lived the longest of all the brothers. But now he's gone. Moses takes us beyond the Genesis story, noting that an end of an entire generation has taken place, and now something new has started. The servants Jacob and Joseph were not the theme of the Pentateuch. So therefore, their passing doesn't move us into a new idea. The idea remains the same. Servants come and go, but the promises of God remain. That's the Pentateuch. Servants come and go, but the promises of God remain. One of the blessings that we had when you gave us the opportunity to sabbatical was that we were able to go see other churches, which was really, really sweet. I mean, we... We regularly pray for the gospel ministries that are right here in our neighborhood. But one of the areas we were able to go visit was the church that we had moved here from. For those of you who don't know, uh, our family had ministered at a church for 10 years that's about an hour west of here. And I hadn't been back to a church service there in six years. And so two Sundays ago today, we were able to be there with them. And it was sweet to see friends and fellowship with them. I remembered in preparing this and thinking about that statement. The servants of God come and go, 
but the promises remain. And I remembered our last day there. And it was really sweet church fellowship as we enjoy here. You can relate to that. But the last Sunday and the last song that we would sing together, I selected, He Will Hold Me Fast. That was pastoral in our exodus. I wanted to be sure that no one in the congregation had the misconception that somehow the work of God was going to be diminished just because one feeble servant moves on. He will hold us fast. And that's the Pentateuch. That is the Pentateuch. It is God who is faithful to all of his promises and they remain even when his servants come and go. The promises of God include, if you want to take your Bible and look at Genesis 46, verse 3. Genesis 46, verse 3. What had God said to them? Genesis 46, 3. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to the Egyptians, for there I will make you into a great nation. That's what God had promised. Genesis 35. You want to go back a few more chapters? God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. Kings shall come from your own body. If you want to go back another chapter to the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis, or a few chapters to Genesis 12, verse 2. God promises to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Now, Exodus starts with the death of what had seemed to be the fulfillment of that promise. But they're dead. Will the promise outlive the generation of servants? But the people of Israel were fruitful. Joseph died. The people are still fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. In way of gospel clarity, I want to say this before I move away from this section about prosperity. The wheels of God's plan may seem to us to grind on slowly, but we know they grind on certainly. The wheels may seem to us to be grinding so slowly. How can this still be the fulfillment of his promises? But we study the word. We see new the revelation that he who promised is faithful. He is a promise-keeping, covenant-keeping king. You don't need to turn there, but Peter had to talk to a group of Jewish descendants about the patient promise-keeping of God. In 2 Peter chapter 3, he says this, By the word of the Lord, even now, the heavens and the earth are being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. What is happening right now is happening by the patient withholding of God until the final judgment and destruction. So he says, do not overlook the fact, beloved, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. As some people think things are slow, 
But he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is not slow. The wheels grind forward to the promised conclusion. But God is patient. I just want to say a word about our prosperity. You're not the generation that heard Abraham say, hey, guess what God just promised? You're not the generation that saw Moses come down, face burned with the radiant glory of God, and said, this is God's communication to us. This is God's instruction for us. It's terms of his covenant. You're not the generation maybe that first realized that you were under the oppressive taskmaster of sin and needed a new benevolent king. Maybe you're a second or third or fourth generation Christian. And so here today, you hear all those promises and you've heard the stories and you've heard people who say, we have witnessed the faithfulness of God, but you might be here today thinking, ah, where is all this heading? It seems that the slow pace has created in me at least some functional doubt. Do you understand the difference between functional and confessed doubt? I don't think that our church is one that has a lot of people who are saying today, I think I'm about 48 hours from verbally denying the faith. I don't think. I don't think that we're a congregation that has a lot of friends and, and fellow congregants who are about to say, that's it, I can't believe anymore, I'm out. But there is still danger. Where we would be a generation far enough removed from the the vivid displays of God's faithfulness to his people that we might say, I'm not going to deny it, but I just don't know how it's actually going to shape my day. And so we don't become deniers of the Christian confession, but we become hypocritical in Christian function. So I hope that the book of Exodus guards us again from being practical deniers of God's covenant-keeping faithfulness so that it is a joy to continue to lay up treasure where our hope is deferred because we know with certainty, with, with confidence, that all the promises of God will be yes and amen. The struggle to live in joy of promises, the struggle to joyfully and rightly worship in the prosperity of God is only magnified in the fact that we are suffering some measures of persecution. And we'll see persecution in the second half of this chapter. So from prosperity, God bless them, they're fruitful, they multiply, they're everywhere in Egypt. And then we see the second scene of chapter one, persecution. Now, let's start in verse 10, and let's identify. You can see it in verse 8, but you can see it also in verse 10. There is a second cause in God's plan. God has these clear first-causer moments, like in creation. And God spoke, and it was first-causer. Now, in the Exodus narrative, 
There is a king who doesn't know Joseph. And that king says in verse 10, come let us. The king is a second causer. The the situation for the children of Israel has changed dramatically. Joseph died, and there's a new king. Uh, let Let me explain to you some history. This new king is probably a natural born citizen of Egypt. The Pharaoh who was ruling when Joseph had such um, um, blessing in the land was probably uh, of the 17th dynasty known as the Hyksos Pharaohs. These are foreigners who came in and conquered the land and became the Pharaoh. By the way, you know what Pharaoh means? The word Pharaoh literally means big house. These are the guys who live in the big house, the king. The Pharaoh. That's why in verse 8 it says, a new king. We know him as a Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the, the practical term, the guy that lives in the big house. The king, the Pharaoh, during Joseph's reign in Egypt was probably of the Hyksos dynasties. Now this Pharaoh is probably ruling in the 19th dynasty of Pharaohs. He is a true-blooded Egyptian. Now, As a king who has grown up hearing about the foreigners who came in and actually took charge, he's very concerned about foreigners being in charge. So this king says, I don't care. If you're not true-blooded, born and raised Egyptians, we have a problem right away. So he says in verse 10, come, let us. By the way, That expression resonates both in the garden when the triune God says, come, let us, and then it happens again in Genesis at Babel when the people are told, fill all the earth with my image, and the people say, ah, let's make a great name for ourselves. They say, come, let us build a high tower and make a great name for ourselves. Let's not scatter. Let's stay right here so that we can continue to be a mighty people. So Moses right away sets Pharaoh up in this great conflict that Pharaoh doesn't even know he's in. Pharaoh is serving as a second causer. Uh, Sometimes God uses nature to be a second causer. Sometimes people. Here, Pharaoh is a second causer. God is controlling. Pharaoh is a second agent of control. You can see how God sometimes uses nature, sometimes uses people, just in the one story of Jonah. You know the story of Jonah? God uses a storm and a whale and the crew members of a sailing vessel to bring about his will for Jonah. Pharaoh is that sort of second causer. So first thing we see in this story of their persecution is Pharaoh. And then we see Pharaoh's plan. Let's look next. Slavery under Pharaoh. Pharaoh's first strategy is to make them serve Egypt in a building program that was designed to compel their loyalty. So you should see it. It's somewhat subtle. The first phase of Pharaoh's plan was not transparently to kill all the people. The first phase is let's give the people a sense of ownership. Let's have them build things so that they'll want to tell their children, look, we were part of that. The effect is the opposite. 
the more they were forced into these working environments and the more they were spread throughout the kingdom, the more they multiplied. In verse 12, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people. Why? There's, there's no record to this point that the people were giving anybody any trouble. There's no record that the people had some sort of nationalistic agenda to overthrow the Egyptian pharaoh. There's, there's just a bunch of them. They're multiplying so fast. This is extraordinary what we're witnessing. And I would say to you, in a fallen world, Josh referred to this earlier when he was mentioning communion. In a fallen world, the blessings of God are often in such conflict with the prevailing values of this world that they become a threat to those who themselves aren't aligned with God at all. The blessings become so foreign and strange and uncomfortable that those who aren't themselves aligned with God find them as a threat. So Pharaoh engages in the second part. Adding to their burden, now officially making them slaves and setting over them cruel taskmasters. The first step, give them a sense of ownership. Therefore, hoping that they'll become allegiant to the national priority. The second step was to reorder the Israelites in their place in Egyptian culture. No longer would they be an independent people operating as fellow citizens, but now a slave caste under the control of slave masters. Douglas Stewart comments on that. He says, the lower a group is in the social economic class, the less likely they will be to organize themselves and rise up against their oppressors. Seems true. But Pharaoh's plan wasn't just social demotion. He wasn't saying, all right, we'll just make these people insignificant. He goes beyond that. The text doesn't come right out and say that originally Pharaoh said, I want to kill the Israelites. But that becomes clear, doesn't it? He takes these midwives and says, all right, here's what I want you to do. When they come in to deliver, if they deliver a male, kill all the male children. But the female children, let them live. I don't know exactly what that would have looked like if they had obeyed that. I mean, do they secretly kill the child before the mother is aware? And they say, well, I'm sorry, your child was stillborn. All the Hebrew children, males, are being stillborn. There must be some pandemic. They're all being stillborn. I don't know if that was the method that was envisioned. But the midwives feared God. Look at verse 15 and 16. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, let me read that again. Then the king of Egypt, whose name is, oh, we don't know, said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua. God says, you don't really matter. But these ladies, pretty much. That's beautiful, isn't it? You want to be opposed to my will? All history is going to forget who you were. You're just a second causer. But these midwives feared God and acted faithfully. And 
their names are. When you serve as midwives, he says in verse 16, to the Hebrew women, and see them and the birth stool, if it's a son, kill them. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. I, I do want to make a comment quickly in passing that is not the theme of chapter 1. But as I studied this, I can't help but think about Pharaoh's strategy for population control. That's what Pharaoh was doing. He was going to decrease the population of a certain group of people that were deemed undesirable. I want you to understand this is not one moment in history. This is a revelation of sinful man. And that expression of sinfulness exists right now. We are living through 114 years of evil eugenics. You know what eugenics is? Eugenics is uh, the science of trying to eradicate certain unpleasant characteristics in a population. So you, you take things that are considered undesirable. It's basically what Nazi Germany did. You take things that are undesirable and you try to weed those things out. And listen to me. In 1916, a group of ladies built a birth control center in New York City to try to eradicate what they felt was unpleasant characteristics in the population. And today, there are more black babies aborted than born in New York City. And I can't help but think about the expressions of sinfulness, as Solomon says, are not new. There's not a new creativity today that didn't exist over 3,000 years ago in Pharaoh to suppress the population of the Israelite people. This is a testimony of man's sinfulness, but God's faithfulness. God had said all through Genesis, I'm going to make a whole bunch of you like a nation from this family. And Pharaoh said, nah, I'll kill all the males. And what do we learn about our God in the face of this world's most powerful oppression? That he who promised is faithful and no one will stay his hand. The servants of the first causer are these midwives. Pharaoh had decreed that the Israelite boys should be killed. That doesn't happen. The midwives are more willing to please God than Pharaoh. So Pharaoh calls them back in and says, what are you doing? And they say, you know, the Hebrew women, they go through labor quick. They don't even get to our office. They're just having baby boys. Ugh! He's so mad. And then true colors of his wicked heart are known. In verse 22. Throw all the male babies in the river Nile. This book is not an account of our need to be liberated. We don't need to go from bad taskmasters to being independent, self-governing people. When these people were caught in the wilderness and when calamity would strike, they didn't have enough water or they're hemmed in by the Red Sea or they're having to eat the same thing over and over. 
providentially, miraculously, they would sometimes come right out and say, it would have just been better if we were in Egypt. I want you to look at verse 22 again. And, and we could think, how could they ever say that? All the baby boys thrown into the Nile, and there were parts when they were inconvenienced in their wandering where they said, would have been better just stay in Egypt. And, and I know it's easy to point fingers and say, how could you say that? But we have to be careful, right? Because we have these subtle inconveniences in our providence in our prosperity, and functionally, we might say, I might just as well be a servant to sin still. How could we possibly ever entertain such a deception? So pray, Christian. Guard the spirit of your joy that even in persecution, you would say with total conviction, the God who has promised is faithful. And this light momentary affliction is not to be compared with the glory that is ours in Christ. No less than seven times throughout the Pentateuch, Moses says to the people, remember, you were slaves in Egypt. Seven times. Don't you think if that was you, you'd be like, can you stop? That is a very sensitive moment in our history, and we would rather you not mention it. Remember, you were slaves in Egypt. I'm telling you, Moses, quit. Seven times, no less than that. Oftentimes referred or inferred, but spoken. Don't forget, you were slaves in Egypt. Why? Why keep telling the people about their condition? Well, both Jesus in John 8 and Paul in Romans 6 compare the condition of their slavery in Egypt to our spiritual condition in slavery to sin. Do you think that hearing this account of their oppression, of their persecution, of the evil taskmaster that Jesus says is like sin in our life, do you think it sheds some light on our glorious salvation? I think so. Therefore, I think it's good for us to remember we were slaves to sin. But by the grace of God, we are children, seated now and forever at the table of his providence. It's good for us. Exodus is one of five books in the Pentateuch. It reveals to us what we know in the New Testament. It reveals to us the God of promise-keeping. The first causer controls history. God is in control. In verse 8, we read, a new king shows up. Where did he come from? If you were here during our brief study of Romans, you remember that we talked about that, Pharaoh. And God said directly, for my purposes, I put you in the big house. That's really comforting. That is really comforting. Take, take one... We'll take one breath. So your senses are a little bit alert because I'm going to finish with this. The ploy of Pharaoh was to take these people he was concerned about being a threat to their way of life 
and give them a sense of national identity. Like, give them a sense of belonging. Build some stuff. Be a part of the, the progress so that you won't oppose it. Oh, that, that's not going to work? All right? We'll make you a separate lower class of people. We will treat you like your identity is less significant than our identities. That won't work. Well, we'll kill you. That scheme didn't retire, did it? The national leader saw what was a concern and tried to undo it. But God is in control of history. And the very Pharaoh who concluded with transparent honesty, I'm just going to throw all the male babies in the river. We read that God put that Pharaoh in the big house. I want you to resist any sort of deception that the gospel is meant to set us in some sort of autonomy or like independence. Like there is evil and there is good and there is us. There's not three. Moses is going to say to them later, choose choose who you're going to serve. It's either this or it's this. Resist the deception to see the gospel as our liberation from rule, but our adoption into the family of a father king. The rulers of this age would try to wipe out the promises of God, undo them. But the God who promised is faithful, and no one can resist his will. And we look forward to learning more about the revelation of our promise-keeping God in the book of Exodus. Pray with me, please. Lord, Father, we are thankful that every word has been given to us by your Spirit and preserved for us and for our instruction. So I pray that the study of Exodus would not be a study of history, a study of certain theological minutia or insignificant data collecting, but this would be received by your church as the instruction of a loving father who has ransomed us from the bondage, the slavery, the incarceration of sin to be a new people for your name's sake. Lord, that we would learn the the continuation of your promises and fulfillment, your promises and fulfillment, and that we would be a church that is guarded against functional doubting. To be able to say with saints who have said for generations that it would not be foolish of us to give up what is fleeting to gain what can never be lost. And so, Father, I pray that you would continue this work of liberating your people for your name's sake and causing us with joy to endure hardship or persecution, trusting in your promises. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand with me and sing?